You cannot blow off a subpoena in America. You cannot sit on your couch and defy the people's representatives in Congress. So we must enforce the rule of law here, my colleagues. We must do it. If you act deliberately with sneering, cavalier contempt for the American people and their representatives, we will hold you in contempt. That's Congressman Jamie Raskin last week on the House floor, laying out exactly what's at stake in the battle over Steve Bannon's refusal to testify before the select committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Few members have done more to try to get to the bottom of what happened that day and punish those who were responsible than Raskin, a Democrat from the Washington suburbs in Maryland, who before being elected to Congress was a constitutional law professor. It was Raskin who led the charge to impeach former President Trump over his role in inciting the attack. And now it is Raskin, as a member of the Select Committee, who is one of those spearheading the effort to hold Bannon and anybody else tempted to defy the panel's subpoenas accountable. But even if Raskin and the committee finally does get Bannon to testify, what would they actually learn? And what do they believe the committee's investigation might ultimately uncover? We'll ask Raskin himself on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So the January 6th committee uh, is going about its work, uh, stepping up its investigation. Obviously, this Bannon thing uh, is uh, the most sharpest action they've taken yet, a a criminal referral to the Justice Department. Now all eyes on Merrick Garland uh, as to see what he's going to do. But, you know, Raskin, I thought he had a great retort last week on the House floor, the day the um, House did this. uh, Trump puts out a statement that the real insurrection was November 3rd. And um, Raskin corrected him, saying, no, what we had on November 3rd, Mr. Former President, was an election not an insurrection. The insurrection took place some months later. In any case, you know, that big question hanging up over it, like, what are they going to get out of Bannon? And where does this investigation go? Well, there are a couple of things about Bannon that are important. One is that he was talking to Donald Trump, I believe, on the 5th of January, right? Um, yeah, right, the, right, the night before at the Willard Hotel. So right. so you get maybe something about that conversation and the, what, Victoria, what do they call a state of mind, criminal state of mind, mens rea? Mens rea, yeah. Mens rea, yeah. <laughs> so they, maybe they'll get Trump's mens rea out of that interview if they get but to all, talk all to Bannon. But all that assumes that and, Bannon would remotely tell anything Well, of course, I know. And, and, truth, right. and the other, is, and the other problem— Why would you know, we believe that? So, all right. Well, first of all, let's let's talk about what he potentially could reveal. The other thing is, you know, we know that uh, he was on his podcast talking about how all hell's going to break loose— on January 6th. So what did he know? What kinds of contacts did he have with people who were organizing the protest, the rally, uh, but then the assault on the Capitol itself? And we don't know what the committee knows based on its investigation that they're prepared 
to ask him about. I mean, maybe they've got emails and texts that Bannon had with people who were involved. We, we just don't know that. We've, we've, got to, we've got to see. And then finally, he was at that meeting and I guess what they were calling uh, the uh, command center for January 6th in the, in the Willard Hotel with a kind of um, Star Wars bar <laughs> rogues gallery of people who were there and who were involved in the efforts to overturn the election. So clearly there is interest in knowing what he knows. The risk here for the Democrats is Bannon's going to eat this up. I mean, he is a master propagandist. He always wants to be in the center of the stage. And so, you know, he could turn himself into a martyr here. He will have a huge platform to speak directly to the MAGA crowd and and his followers. So it's not without some risk. It'll definitely be um, theater, uh, but it potentially could be very important as well. But, you know, Bannon serves one other purpose, which is quite independent of Bannon himself, which is the committee by and the, the House, by seeking criminal contempt proceedings against him, have sent a warning to every other potential witness who's appearing before the committee, which is cross us and you will immediately see penalties. So Bannon may eat it up, but there are a lot of other people who the committee has subpoenaed and who have asked for evidence from who are probably not quite as willing as Bannon to take it all the way to a jail cell. Although although some of them some of them will probably have stronger claims on executive privilege than Bannon. Bannon was no longer in the government at the time, but Mark Meadows was the chief of staff, you know, he's talking to the president all the the time. And that's, you know, that's going to be tough to pierce executive privilege on 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 the president's own chief of staff. Right. Yeah. But 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 watch this space, because uh, on Friday, there's going to be testimony from the acting attorney general for the civil division, Jeffrey Clark, who should also be able to assert executive privilege for many of his conversations with the president, but who apparently is planning on showing up on Friday and testifying before the committee. But as I say, watch this space. But you're, you're right, Mike. There are many people who are going to have a variety of different ways that they might be able to try to fend off the committee. But there are equally a large number who don't and who won't. All of the organizers of the rally, the social media companies, the telecom companies who've been subpoenaed, anyone who wasn't a member of the executive branch in 2020 isn't going to have executive privilege as a shield. So, uh, you know, I, 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 while I think you're right, there's some definitely some exceptions to the people who should be afraid of what the committee can do to them. There are a lot of people who are going to look at what happened to Bannon and think, I better just hand this data over. So one person I would I would like to see testify, and I don't know uh, whether they've tried to subpoena him or try to get him to cooperate, is uh, John Eastman, the uh, the legal architect of the coup of the <laughs> effort to overthrow the election? Seems to be doing these like mental, like flip flop gymnastics, like to walk away from the plain wording of the memo he wrote. Right? You know, just to said remind he didn't really our listeners what he wrote. Yeah. yeah, just to remind our listeners, he wrote this two page memo that Bob Woodward and Robert Costa obtained uh, for their book, Peril. We interviewed them on the podcast for it, which lays out a kind of a six-point plan how they can, you know, overturn the election, get get the states uh, to send in a new slate of, ele- uh, of electors. Why, why Mike Pence, in his uh, role as... Uh, 
ministerial role as vice president, you know, for the certification could actually stop the certification. On on the grounds that there yeah. were supposedly alternative electors from the states. Right. Which it's all nonsense. Basically, right. Basically. <laughs> there were uh, John, no alternative electors. Yeah. Right. Arguably, yeah. John, John Eastman was essentially attempting to provide the legal slash constitutional bogus window dressing to justify a coup or overturning the election results. Yeah. Right. And it's all nonsense. And at times he said he, he can't talk. I think he's refused to talk to some reporters claiming attorney client uh, privilege. He yeah. did give But then he did give an interview uh, to the National Review. And to Larry Lessig, you know, our hour and a half long interview to Larry Lessig. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't. I'm going to have to catch up with that one. But in <laughs> which he told the, the, the National Review that these options that he laid out in this memo did not represent his advice. He wrote the memo on the request of, you know, someone else on the Trump legal team, Rudy who Giuliani, but he couldn't remember who it was. So I don't know if you can claim attorney client privilege if then you turn around and say, it's actually not my advice. Was. So um, I would love to see him testify. Yeah. The idea that, you know, this guy writes this memo, which has no qualifiers in it, which doesn't say, you know, maybe here's alternatives, here's, you know, theories we could pursue. It's like, here's how <laughs> Mike Pence can declare Donald, can, can maneuver things so that Donald Trump is declared the winner of the election. And by, by the way, he was also, you know, one of the speakers at the Stop the Steal yeah, rally. Right. So he clearly believed what he was saying. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. He was he was he was ranting on about, you know, hidden folders in computers, switching votes. It was uh, it was quite the magnificent rant that he managed to uh, to engage in on January 6th. Well, speaking of rants, just back to uh. Bannon again, because, you know, look, what, what he said that got everybody on the committee riled up is, you know, all hell's going to break loose and, you know, things are going to happen that nobody is expecting. Maybe Bannon knew something, but Bannon is a professional provocateur, a professional bullshitter. He says all sorts of wild things. And for what it's worth, Michael Wolff, who, like, you know, rode Bannon's uh, various comments to bestsellerdom with a couple of his books, was on MSNBC the other night saying, Bannon is loving this. This is Steve Bannon's, you know, best day ever. The idea that they're coming after him, that's exactly what he wants. And he probably relishes the idea that some point he gets hauled before the committee in which he could, you know, mouth his bullshit and give them the rhetorical finger. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But there's another point here, and this is something that Victoria has talked about eloquently on this podcast, which is even if they don't get anything out of out of Bannon, they are vindicating a principle here, which is that you cannot thumb your nose at a legitimate uh, congressional investigation. This is an investigation into a, you know, attempted coup in the United States. And Congress has to show, I think, at this particular moment where the stakes are so high uh, that they are not impotent and they can actually do these congressional investigations and compel testimony from key witnesses. So I, I, I get that. And I, I understand that. I'm just saying politically, uh, you know, when, you know, they go to the mat on Steve Bannon, they get the Justice Department to prosecute him. He finally caves. He goes up there. And if he doesn't give them anything useful <laughs> to use that advances the investigation, this could well be seen as, you know, once again, you know, the committee going down or a, the Democrats going down a rabbit hole that doesn't 
payoff. It's just uh, something that they should be thinking about and cautious about. But I'm sure Jamie Raskin, our guest, has thought all about that. So um, let's bring him in and uh, get to it. Okay, we now have with us Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, a member of the January 6th committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Uh, Mike, uh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you guys. Well, lots to talk about. Look, a milestone moment last week. You voted, the committee voted to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt for refusing to testify. The full House has now voted for a criminal referral. It's gone to the Justice Department. Walk us through what you expect to happen now, how quickly you expect something to happen, and how is this going to play out assuming the Justice Department adopts your recommendation for a criminal prosecution of Steve Bannon? Well, the relevant statute tells the U.S. attorney that he or she shall bring the matter before the grand jury. Although that's not been translated into a must in the past by the Justice Department. It has not brought criminal charges against people who the House has referred to them. That's right. So obviously there's some prosecutorial discretion built into it, but I think it creates at least the presumption that um, it will go to a grand jury. I mean, in this case, we have one naked defiance and violation of the congressional subpoena. And two, uh, it's hard to imagine a more serious matter than trying to knock over the U.S. Capitol and uh, commit an insurrection and a political coup against the government. So, you know, his contempt is uh, sneering and open, and um, he's held us in contempt. Everybody else seems to be able to cooperate, but um, he obviously feels he's above the law. And so... um, you know, we, we're we leaving it up to the Department of Justice, as we must, of course, to do their job. They've got their rules of prosecutorial judgment uh, and their, you know, various standards and so on. But we're hopeful that that is one crime that will go prosecuted. What would you expect would happen, uh, Congressman? So the Justice Department takes it before the grand jury. Let's say the grand jury hands up an indictment. At that point, would you expect some kind of a settlement where Steve Bannon then caves and says, okay, I'll testify? Or does he actually get charged and processed? Well, all of that is within prosecutorial discretion. What would you hope would happen? Well, you know, at this point, I really want to just see them, the executive branch and law enforcement do it their way. I mean, he has clearly acted in contempt and defiance of Congress. And they can figure it out. Now, in the meantime, of course, he can change his mind. He can repent of this defiance. If it wasn't perfectly clear to him before, I hope by now it's perfectly clear, he's got a right to take the fifth. I mean, if he's committed crimes and he doesn't want to talk about a particular thing because it might incriminate him, he just invokes the fifth. But you've got to show up. That's why people take the fifth. You at least have to state your name, your address, your profession, what you're doing, and then you invoke the fifth selectively according to particular questions. But you don't have a right to just blow off the whole proceeding. And um, that is a crime. But but there are obviously other ways to deal with it in addition to criminal contempt. There's civil contempt, which is a lawsuit. 
where we go in and ask a court to compel him to participate. And then there's the inherent contempt power that Congress has. But you didn't uh, do either of those two. Well, we haven't done them so far. I and mean, we got, you know, I mean, I know that he would like to think this is somehow the Steve Bannon show or Donald Trump, but we've got a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we're learning about the role that social media played in the January 6th attack. We're learning about all the extremist groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Aryan Nations. And we're, we're learning about all of the backroom maneuvers to orchestrate a political coup against the vice president to get him to refuse to certify the electoral college count. We're learning about the financing. I mean, Steve Bannon is just part of the picture. I mean, he, he obviously has some significant stuff to say, given that the night before he went out on his podcast and said, tomorrow all hell's going to break loose and basically told people that they didn't even know what they had bargained for and is going to be unlike anything they'd ever seen. And they were closing in on the target and so on. Yeah. So he's got stuff to bring forward. You, you know, he should understand it's his legal duty. One would think it would be a civic honor for someone who had once worked for the federal government before he was fired by Donald Trump um, to actually be able to assist in an investigation into an attack against the United States. But I guess that's just not the way he sees it. Meanwhile, at the same time, you know, Donald Trump recently sued to uh, kind of attempt to assert executive privilege against the um, National Archives. And uh, the question is whether or not the let's call it somewhat open question whether or not there is executive privilege and whether or not a former president can invoke executive privilege. Does that uh, complicate the effort to seek criminal contempt against Steve Bannon? No, not at all. I don't think it's related to it. I mean, Steve Bannon was not a former is not a former president and Steve Bannon was not working for the executive branch. And Donald Trump has not tried to assert executive privilege against the subpoena of Steve Bannon. So although, although Bannon's lawyer says he's been instructed by Trump to invoke executive privilege, not to disclose well anything because of executive privilege. He may as well say he was instructed by Santa Claus to invoke executive privilege or the Fifth Amendment. What does that mean to us? That means nothing to us. Well, I mean, it, just, mean, it means irrelevant. that there's a, pre, a former presidential claim of executive privilege, well, which, as I understand it, has not been okay. litigated. All right, well, l l let's break it down into steps then. First of all, the executive privilege belongs to the existing president, not to the former president, okay? If there were theoretically any residual executive privilege left in a former president, that president would have to come and assert it, which he did not do in the Bannon case. Even as to his own case, I don't know if you read that pleading, but it was one of the worst legal pleadings I've read in my life. I guess the last one that bad as I saw their answer to my invitation to Trump to testify in the, the impeachment trial back in February. But in the real cases relating to executive privilege, the court weighs the public's overwhelming right to know in a democracy about what's taking place with its own government, with their own government, against the not the president is a human being's executive privilege, but the office's privilege in order to protect national security secrets or some national security plans. Here, both of those criteria are on the same side. The public's overwhelming right to know and interest in knowing and our national security interests are all on the side of disclosure because it was an attack against the United States. 
against Congress. So what would this hypothetical executive privilege be protecting the right for a president or a former president to conspire against the union to overthrow the counting of electoral college votes? I mean, that just makes no sense. I think I uh, cut off Isakoff before he was going to ask the question, how long do you think it'll take for the Justice Department uh, to move on this uh, Bannon case? I mean, other than the legal judgment as to whether Bannon can actually assert executive privilege, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of facts to investigate here. So is this something you think uh, they can and should bring to the grand jury within a matter of days or weeks? Or could it could it take longer? Well, criminal tends to take a little bit longer. And of course, you know, you're dealing with the criminal standard of proof rather than the civil standard of proof. And they want to make sure they're observing all of the rights of the potentially contumacious witness, uh, the the defiant citizen. But it certainly shouldn't take the three years or whatever it took to deal with the McGahn litigation. That was civil. But there, of course, you had a real president, a sitting president asserting executive privilege, not a former president. And you also had an attorney general who was acting very much the political flunky. But we don't have either of those things. I mean, look, we we really do want to try to return to some semblance of normality. We turned it over to the Department of Justice and we want to let them do their thing, let them do their job. They've got their procedures and their rules. We respect that. We're not trying to browbeat them or anything. They can deal with it. And you know, we're very optimistic. We think we've got a great case for why they should go forward. But we're looking at, you know, a whole spectrum of different options of what to do in the event that they don't. And again, the whole investigation does not turn on Steve Bannon. I know he fashions himself the the global leader of the alt-right efforts to destroy the deep state, which is what most of us call democracy. But he's not at the center of our investigation right now. So following up on that, just this weekend, Rolling Stone published an article which seemed to maybe hint at a little bit imprecisely that uh, members of Congress were certainly involved in planning the rally at the ellipse that ultimately migrated up to Capitol Hill. There was a, a lot of maybe conjecture about whether or not it also included whether or not members of Congress helped plan the events on Capitol Hill. Is that something that the committee is investigating and how far along are you on it if you are? Well, Victoria, obviously, I'm, you know, I don't want to talk about specific details of things that we're looking at, but we're looking at the whole thing. I mean, there was a violent insurrection, the worst violent assault on the Capitol since the War of 1812. And there was also the effort to close down the presidential election and to subvert our processes for certifying the elector. We're looking at both of those things and everything attendant to it. And the chairman of the committee, Mr. Thompson, has said, we're going to follow the evidence exactly where it leads. And obviously, different witnesses, as we're seeing with Steve Bannon, will present different kinds of challenges depending on whether they're public, they're private, they're executive branch, they're non-executive branch, they're legislative branch, or something else. But the bottom line is nobody whatever their title or office, has the right to try to overthrow the union. That is insurrection. And Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says if you've sworn an oath of office to defend and uphold the Constitution and you engage in insurrection or rebellion, you may not hold office again. 
But, you know, Congressman, I want to I want to explore a little bit, if I can, your theory of the case here, because we had two events. We had the rally on the ellipse about the nonsense, stop the steal stuff and that the election was stolen and all that. And as you powerfully demonstrated during the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, the president and his uh, minions uh, incited the crowd with all sorts of inflammatory rhetoric. And then you had the actual attack on the Capitol, the violence, the mayhem, the threats to everybody's life. The question on the table has always been, was there a connection between those who planned the Stop the Steal rally and the actual violence that took place later that day. And as we've pointed out, as I've pointed out on this podcast many times, you know, we had our uh, old colleague Mark Hosenball, now with Reuters, on a couple of weeks ago, who's pointed out that in the more than 600 arrests that the FBI has made and all the court filings, we've yet to see any, and they've had access, the FBI has, to the social media accounts, the cell phones, the text messages of everybody who actually committed crimes that day. And we've yet to see any evidence that they were in communication with people in Trump's orbit directing them to commit those crimes. So the question is, what's your theory of the case here about the connection between the rally, obviously about nonsense, but still a political protest, a legal First Amendment protected political protest, and the violence and mayhem that took place later that day? Well, that's obviously part of the focus of our investigation, Michael. I mean, we're, we're trying to determine what exactly all of the linkages were uh, amongst the Trump political entourage, the White House staff, the Trump campaign, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, and then the official rally organizers, and then the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys, the Militiamen, the QAnon followers, and so on. And so we did um, successfully prove, I think, at least in the court of public opinion and in the eyes of history, that Donald Trump incited a violent insurrection. And there was a 57 to 43 vote to that effect in the Senate. We had robust bipartisan, bicameral majorities establishing that I think is a legislative fact. Of course, Trump beat the constitutional spread of two thirds in terms of, an, of a conviction in his case. And nonetheless, I think that that fact was proven, but we were looking at one guy and one crime. And what you're correctly pointing out is that the much broader issue is who organized it, who paid for it, what actually was well, who the paid plan? for and what, though? I mean, who yeah. paid for the rally, which is perfectly legal conduct, yeah. or who paid for violence and mayhem? Yeah. On the, well, on the US the, again, that's part of the burden of our investigation to try to determine that. I will say that, you know, some of the evidence is hiding in plain sight. I mean, you have a president who appeals to his followers to come to Washington for a wild protest. You've got Steve Bannon the day before saying all hell is going to break loose. You've got the president saying, go and fight like hell. 
you know, uh, and you got to show- Let me just, the, yeah, let me just, the reason you're interested in Bannon is because of those provocative comments, all hell is going to pr- break loose tomorrow. It's not going to be like you expect, which suggests he knew something, which suggests that those people who met at the Willard Hotel the night before uh, Trump's orbit were planning something more than just a political rally. But, you know, the Washington Post had a very long piece on Sunday just reconstructing what happened at the Willard Hotel. And all the way down, buried in that piece, they quote a guy named Boris Epstein, who was part of that inner circle, who was there on the planning uh, of the rally. And what they point out is that when the violence started, Pretty early at 2.30 p.m., he tweeted to all those protesting, please stay peaceful, in caps, and respect the law, in caps. That suggests that at least that guy who was in the inner circle wasn't expecting or planning the violence that later took place or that was taking place when he tweeted. Well, um, th- that will be a particle of evidence that will be considered along with the, all the other evidence, undoubtedly. I think what you've got to look at is the whole sequence of events and organizing. And um, as an uh, old time uh, organizer from my uh, college and law school days, if you if you organize a rally and then there's a march someplace, generally there's something to do when you arrive at that place. There are speeches there's music, there's something to do. They just organized a rally and a march to the Capitol where they were told to fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not gonna have a country anymore. And then there were these uh, well-coordinated quasi-military elements, neo-fascist groups, white nationalist groups, uh, self-proclaimed militia groups that had been training for a violent confrontation. But I think, you know, you can go back, uh, Mike, uh, or the world is going to come to see the thousands of messages that were sent before January 6th discussing what was going to happen and stop the steal, locked and loaded, civil war part two. All of these things are going to become part of the vernacular when we reconstruct exactly the sequence of events leading up to January 6th. And in fact, Right now, what the Republicans are saying in defense of Steve Bannon is everybody knew it was going to be violent. Their their defense is that everyone knew that the violence was coming. And so when he was out there advertising that and when Trump was making those noises, they were all just stating the obvious. Let's say you could kind of wave a magic wand and get an answer to one question. Just there was like one question. You, no one would stop you from digging in and getting all of the information you needed to answer that question. What's the one question you want to be able to walk away from this committee having answered? Well, are we going to be able to stop the next one? I mean, that's really what it's about. I mean, th- this is not a matter of historical curiosity. I mean, we're in the thick of a struggle to defend democratic institutions. I mean, over the weekend, the QAnon people got together and there was a sheriff, a former sheriff who got up and said, that wasn't an insurrection, that was a frat party. He said, when we actually bring the insurrection, you'll know it and it'll be too late for you to do anything. I tweeted out his verbatim words, but that is all over the right wing internet. They're saying, look, if we had wanted an intersection, we would not have left our guns in our cars and back in the hotel and motel rooms. 
I mean, what lesson do you think they're learning from this? They're learning exactly how far they can go. And you talk to the political scientists, they will tell you from studies from around the world that the single biggest indicator of a successful coup is a recently failed coup where the perpetrators get to study the weaknesses in the political structure. So, you know, if, if our friends in the GOP got their way and we never had, they successfully blocked a commission, but if they had been able to block the select committee and if they were able to sweep all of this under the rug or make people believe with Donald Trump that the police officers were greeted with hugs and kisses instead of with baseball bats and steel pipes and Confederate battle flags in the face, if they could convince people that we would be in extreme danger of uh, repeat occurrence. And I would say right now we are in danger of a repeat. Well, and it, and it may be it may be worth pointing out that Donald Trump uh, recently, I guess he didn't tweet it, but uh, put out in a statement that November 3rd, was the was, was the, the insurrection was the was yeah. the real insurrection uh, which January the congressman 6th, had a very good retort to January sixth with the protest yeah yeah right uh, but I, I wanted to actually congressman just follow up uh, with just one more question on the Rolling Stone article because Alexandria Ocasio Cortez uh, retweeted the story and she said she and she commented any member of Congress who helped plot a terrorist attack on our nation's capital must be expelled. Uh, well, the story did not say that any of these members of Congress, any of these Republicans members helped plan a terrorist uh, plot. But and I, neither I guess the, did she. And neither did she. Well, no, but she but she said if they did. And I guess the question is, you know, is that helpful to your committee? You're trying to run a a uh, a sober, fact based, serious investigation here and for members of Congress to be tweeting and suggesting that this may have happened when there's really no evidence yet that, that it, is, it seems like that might undercut the credibility of, of Democrats as they're trying to get well, to the truth here. I mean, I didn't see her tweet, but from your your recitation of it, Danny, I mean, it sounds to me she's trying to establish a principle or at least a principle in her own mind going forward, which is if somebody's guilty of that, they don't belong in the U.S. Congress. Um, the FBI director called it domestic terrorism. A number of Republicans called it domestic terrorism in the immediate days after. I mean, they've. Oh, well, I'm not disputing that it's domestic terrorism. The yeah. question is, did Whether Republican members involved. of Congress plot? Were they part of the, the conspiracy and, and a terrorist plot here? So, yeah, yeah, f fair enough. Um, and look, I don't know about uh, I was as surprised um, to read that in the newspaper as anyone. I, I don't know about specifically those interviews. Uh, I don't know anything about it. So I, I don't quite know what's there and what's not there. I imagine those are leaks not coming from the inside of the investigation, but from the witnesses themselves. At the end of the week, Jeffrey Clark, the acting head of the civil division uh, at the end of the Trump administration, is slated to appear before your committee, I believe. He, of course, is alleged to have, uh, and there is a lot of testimony to this effect, pressured the then acting attorney general and deputy attorney general uh, to investigate all of these fraudulent um, allegations about the election being stolen, putting pressure on the states to investigate. How important a witness is Jeffrey Clark going to be and what are you going to ask him? Well, I can't judge right now how important a witness he is, but he was a very important actor in that part of Trump's plot which involved converting the Department of Justice into an instrument of his political will to get the Department of Justice to try to liquidate electoral college votes in 
multiple states, including Georgia and Pennsylvania uh, and Arizona, and to get the Department of Justice just to proclaim that there was fraud out there. And then, as Trump said, and leave the rest to me and my Republican friends in the House. Remember, there's a simple question of constitutional math here. If they could get Biden's electors below 270, the election, the contest would be kicked over immediately in the House, immediately to under the 12th Amendment to the House uh, for a contingent election. And why would Donald Trump want the election decided in the House with Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of crazy liberals? Because we don't vote one member, one vote in the House under the 12th Amendment. We vote one state, one vote. And they had 27 states in the 117th Congress. We had 22 and one Pennsylvania split right down the middle. Now, I don't think they would have gotten all 27 votes because the Wyoming representative is Liz Cheney, the outlarge rep. And I don't think she would have voted for Donald Trump under those conditions. I don't know who she would have voted for. Um, but in any event, that was, still would have left them with 26 Vote. So it would have been something like 26 to 22 to one to one or something like that. Who knows? But at that point, I believe that Donald Trump was prepared to proclaim martial law, finally send in the National Guard after hours of our cops being pummeled and our whole democracy being threatened. He would have sent in the National Guard to quell the chaos he had unleashed against us and perhaps um, invoke martial law under the Insurrection Act. That's what, you know, Mike Flynn had been telling him to do. That's what his, you know, inner coterie of national security advisors had been recommending. So we were we were really close to losing it all. And that's why I say the democracy has got to stick together. And we got Republicans on our side, too. We got Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney and a bunch of Republican senators who voted to convict Donald Trump of his crimes. And we've got you know, the vast majority of the country. I mean, Biden beat Donald Trump by more than 7 million votes. Hillary even beat him by more than 3 million votes in the popular election, although he eked out an electoral college win. And all of these young people are registering Democrat. And the whole question in America today is, can the majority govern? Or will we be thwarted constantly by the GOP's expert manipulation of the filibuster, voter suppression statutes, gerrymandering, and these other techniques of stopping majority rule? You and your new friend, Liz Cheney, had an interesting encounter with Marjorie Taylor Greene last week on the House floor. You want to tell us about it? Well, I've never been properly introduced to Congresswoman Greene. So I, so I was surprised by the whole interaction because... She came up and not only just started speaking at me without introducing herself, but it was as if she were in mid-sentence, like we, we were in the middle of an argument. And <laughs> so I was surprised by her whole demeanor. But she said, and when are you doing the hearings on the violence at Black Lives Matter protests? And I said, you know, you're right. I am very eager for us to do hearings about Kyle Rittenhouse, for example, and the two people he killed at a Black Lives Matter protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the other violence perpetrated against Black Lives Matter protesters. Then she shifted her focus over to Liz. I think she started by calling her a traitor or something like that. And um, Liz, you know, who's about the, the best mannered person we've got in the House of Representatives and uh, is a pretty low bar, but go ahead. <laughs> she, she gave as good as she got. And she just said, you're a joke. And, uh, you know, I think they got off into the uh, the space lasers controlled by the Rothschilds and everything. Like that. <laughs>
All right. Uh, last question. You're a member of the Progressive Caucus, which has uh, until now held firm against voting for the um, the infrastructure bill unless you get the soft infrastructure uh, reconciliation. This seems to be dragging on endlessly. This week, this week seems to be something of a deadline. Will you vote for the um, for the hard infrastructure roads and bridges bill if there's not a reconciliation package by Wednesday? I mean, I'm not going to entertain that hypothetical because it's a counterfactual hypothetical. I mean, we're, we're counterfactual. Going... You don't have a reconciliation bill <laughs> that you, anybody's agreed on. Situation, okay. <laughs> um, we are going to get, uh, you know, after all these weeks, and it's been agonizing. There's no doubt. We're going to get a package of everything built together. And we're going to make an investment in the physical infrastructure, the roads and the bridges and the ports and the airports and cybersecurity and you name it, all of that. Plus, we are going to get an investment in the social infrastructure that we need. And it's going to be pared down from what the progressives wanted. But so be it. I mean, we are going to keep moving forward. We're going to demonstrate to America that government can deliver in a democracy. When Joe Biden came to see us when we had our first to do over this, he said something very profound that stuck with me, which is he talks to the leaders of countries from all over the world, including the autocracy. So he knows Vladimir Putin in Russia and Orban in Hungary and Duterte. And he says what the autocrats say is, Joe Biden, you're a nice man, you're a kind man, but democracy's had its day. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't function with the unity and the speed that you need today, and you can't build social unity. And the subtext there, of course, is we can't build social unity in the face of the propaganda that they inject into the bloodstream of America through the social media. And that's the test to us. And if this reconciliation doesn't have free community colleges, doesn't have electric utility mandates, doesn't have Medicare expansion, and doesn't raise rates on wealthy people making more than $400,000, can you call this a victory? Well, you, you didn't tell me what was in it in your hypothetical. I mean, so you just told, <laughs> I just me told you all the things I mean, that are not in it, right? <laughs> so, or may not well, be in it. I mean, I always, my, my whole life, Victoria Bassetti will tell you, I've been the most progressive liberal person in the room. And I, I've cherished that spot. I'm no longer that. I'm the pragmatist <laughs> now. I'm like, we've got to get this thing done. We've got to get it done. But the, the Democratic Party now, you know, FDR used to call us the democracy. And that's what I'm calling us now. If you hear me say that, we are the democracy at this point. We've got royalists and we've got conspiracy theorists, lunatics, and we've got autocrats and cult members and followers and leaders. But we are the democracy at this point. And the Progressive Caucus is at the heart of the democracy. So we're going to make the best deal that we can make. And I will go out and I will fight for it because we've got to defend the democracy. Well, Congressman, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. And uh, once again, and we hope to continue to have we have you on as we chart your evolution from liberal idealist to pragmatist. Um, the pragmatic idealist. Pragmatic, idealist. Pragmatic, okay. progressive. You got the alliteration there. Pragmatic, okay. progressive. The pragmatic, progressive, Jamie Rasmussen. Well, I, I do tell them these days that I, I'm really a conservative because I want to conserve the land, the air, the water, the climate, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, vote. everything they want to tear down is everything that we want to conserve. And don't forget, don't forget the First Amendment. And the First, First Amendment. Amendment. 
Yes, indeed. Well, thank you for exercising your rights under the First Amendment. <laughs> thank All you. Right. Thanks, Thanks always. To have Victoria Bassetti on your side, too. <laughs>